You're listening to Purpose Inspired, a podcast series by myself, Wayne Visser. This season is based on a book called The Age of Responsibility, CSR 2.0 and the New DNA of Business. Reasons to be Optimistic Stuart Hart, author of Capitalism at the Crossroads, shares his attitude of optimism and especially on the role of business when he says, I'm a pragmatist in the sense that I look around and try to assess where the leverage points are for change to occur most rapidly. I don't see government and I don't see civil society being able to lead that process per se or to act on their own to make it happen. And so it leaves the world of commerce really as the most logical and maybe the only institution left to look at. And there I see both the potential for great harm and obviously that's the path we've been on, we're headed rapidly for the cliff, but also for great potential to change quickly. What makes the world of commerce interesting in my mind is its ability to creatively destroy itself. When the conditions are right, capitalist institutions, including companies and the competitive process, can generate change in a hurry, and that's what we desperately need. So I think if we're able to turn this ship to really reframe what capitalism might look like in the 21st century, then we have a mechanism through which this change could unfold at the rate that it needs to, in order to move us towards a sustainable world before it's too late. Likewise, Jeffrey Sachs, author of The End of Poverty, is optimistic. Every time I turn around, he told me, Whether it's in India, whether it's in China and Malaysia, Tanzania, there's no shortage of reasons for optimism. In fact, the power of our technologies, the wonders of our information linkages, now creates a world where isolation, which was the essence of poverty, has been broken, where a cell phone is within reach of just about any village, thereby making a link for people who were desperately outside of the chain of information and are now part of markets and global knowledge. There's all the reasons for optimism. For William McDonough, being a designer requires that he is an optimist, because the nature of design, he says, is to make the world better. He explained this perspective to me, saying, When I see the energy in people directed to help solve these problems, and the resources and funding that are being directed towards these questions, I think it's quite a different moment. I don't think of it as a bubble, I think of it as a boom. There are harbingers of hope all over the landscape. It may be too late for a lot of the things around toxification and climate change and things like that, but if we let that stop us from our creative intention, then we stop designing. And the day we stop designing, we lose all hope. Amory Lovins, in his typically quirky and insightful way, told me that he is not on the optimist-pessimist axis at all. I don't view the glass as half empty or half full, he said. I think a glass has a 100% design margin expandable by efficiency. My old mentor David Brower, he reflected, taught that optimism and pessimism are different faces of the same simplistic and irresponsible surrender to fatalism, treating the future as fate, not a choice, and not taking responsibility for creating a future we want. To hope is human. So what does give us hope? For Amory Lovins, three things stand out. 
First, the rapid rise of awareness and leadership in the private sector and the corresponding awakening of civil society empowered by the emerging global central nervous system. Second, the fact that brains are evenly distributed, one per person. And as he put it, as far as we know, there's nothing in the universe so powerful as six billion minds wrapping around a problem. And third, the quality of the new generation of young people who realize there is less time and they need to get on with it. Elizabeth Economy, author of The River Runs Black, said to me that she takes all her inspiration and hope for the future of China from China's environmental activists and from the Chinese people themselves. They're pioneers and every day every one of them is challenged by a system that in many ways is antithetical to strong and good environmental protection and they're pushing it in terms of those issues of transparency and the rule of law and accountability and putting their lives on the line in some cases, she said to me. Simon Zadek, author of The Civil Corporation, told me that his hope doesn't arise from a sense that amazing things are about to happen, that human nature is about to change, that global consciousness is about to be formed, that a revolution is about to take place, that technology will solve the problem, or even in a sort of Margaret Mead way, that there's always some fantastic person down the road doing something amazing. My hope, he said, comes from my very direct experience of trying to make change. I think it's through the habit every day of trying to make change that one maintains an ambition about the possibility. Vandana Shiva agrees. Hope, she said to me, comes through engaging in positive action with communities and people. Every seed we save, every new farmer who goes organic, every time a new food product is bought by a local community, a good, nutritious, healthy, ecological product, every one of those things, and that happens daily, she said. Hunter Lovins, on the other hand, puts her hope in distributed leadership. She told me, I rather like the line from Lord of the Rings on leadership, where Gandalf says, The rule of no realm is mine, that all worthy things that are in peril as the world now stands, those are my care, and for my part I shall not wholly fail if anything passes through this night that can still grow fair and bear fruit and flower again in the days to come. For I too am a steward, did you not know? Her conclusion is that it doesn't matter if you're a wizard or a king or the CEO of Walmart, because remember in the end it was the little people. It was the two fun-loving, unassuming hobbits who had to take on their shoulders that awesome task. And they were scared and they didn't know where they were going, but in the end all the kings and warriors and wizards could just stand by as the little people saved the world. I think real leadership is extraordinary courage by ordinary people. Experiments in Generosity When I think of what gives me hope, it is the extraordinary people I meet and come across in my work on corporate sustainability and responsibility, especially those conducting experiments in generosity. For example, Derek Sivers, whom I only became aware of while writing this book. I will let him tell his own story. He says, when I decided to sell my company, CD Baby, in 2008, I already had enough. I live simply. I hate waste and excess. I have a good apartment, a good laptop, and a few other basics. But the less I own, the happier I am. 
the lack of possessions gives me the priceless freedom to live anywhere, anytime. Having too much money can be harmful. It throws off perspective. It makes people do stupid things like buy extra cars or houses they don't use or upgrade to first class for only $10,000 so that they can be a little more comfortable for a few hours. So I didn't need or even want the money from the sale of the company. I just wanted to make sure I had enough for a simple, comfortable life. The rest should go to music education since that's what made such a difference in my life. So I found a great way to do this. I created a charitable trust called the Independent Musicians Charitable Remainder Uni Trust. When I die, all of its assets will go to music education. But while I'm alive, it pays out 5% of its value per year to me. 5% is still the minimum allowed by law. It's too much. I would have preferred 1%, but oh well, I'm free to use it to start new businesses, to help people or whatever. A few months before the sale, I transferred the ownership of CD Baby and Host Baby, all the intellectual property like trademarks and software, into the trust. It was irreversibly and irrevocably gone. It was no longer mine. It all belonged to the charitable trust. Then, when disc makers bought it, they bought it not from me but from the trust, turning it into a $22 million cash to benefit music education. So instead of me selling the company and getting taxed on the income and giving what's left to charity, that move of giving away the company to charity, then having the charity sell it, saved about $5 million in taxes. Amazing story. Another experiment in generosity that I encountered over the past year, while I was on my CSR Quest world tour, was lentil as anything. I had the good fortune to spend some time with Shinaka Fernando, the founder entrepreneur of this Melbourne-based restaurant chain. Fernando is one of those rare pioneers who are prepared to live by their convictions, to flout social convention and challenge the status quo. After a failed stint as a Buddhist monk in his home country of Sri Lanka, he fell in love with a nun, had a torrid affair and got kicked out. He came to Australia and dabbled in law studies. It wasn't fulfilling, so he gave it up to travel on a shoestring around the third world for six years, learning about culture and community along the way. When he returned to Australia, Fernando started a business importing saris made from recycled fabrics, which made him enough money to start his current social experiment called Lentil as Anything. I call it a social experiment because the business goes beyond simply being a social enterprise. Like other social businesses, Lentil as anything embraces the entrepreneurial spirit while it seeks to have a significant positive influence on the development of the community. But there is something more unique, more challenging, more sublime and more subversive because it gets to the heart of human nature and the essence of Western capitalism. I'm talking about generosity and money. Through Lentil as Anything, Fernando is trying to foster a culture of generosity. What would happen, he wondered, if there were no prices? What if people only paid what they could afford, or what they thought the food was worth? Or what if they were inspired to pay a certain amount? Is there enough generosity left in Western society to run a viable business on the principle of giving and sharing, rather than profit maximization? Would the free rider problem kick in with people taking advantage of the free food? 
According to Fernando, all kinds of interesting things happen when people are faced with the magic box, that little wooden chest that people can place their donations in as they leave. A few, very, very few, take advantage. Some who genuinely can't afford to pay offer to chop vegetables or do dishes. Others make their own assessment of what is a fair price to pay. Some are quietly generous, while others make a theatrical gesture of placing their donation in the magic box. But it all goes beyond the money. Other unexpected things happen too. As I looked around the restaurant, I noticed that this is not a people-like-me experience, where you are surrounded by those from your own socio-economic or ethno-cultural strata. Lentil, as anything, has succeeded in mixing it up, cutting across traditional divides. And because of the philosophy of the place, you may find a wealthy businessman striking up a conversation with a subsistence artist. When you create these kinds of creative connections, it is a potent recipe for innovation, for rediscovering what it means to be human. Fernando insists that lentil, as anything, is first and foremost about good food. Interestingly, vegetarian food, because that is the most inclusive, making concerns about halal or kosher or meat-based preparation less tricky. But it is clearly more than that. It is an invitation to restore our faith in the essential goodness of humanity and the whole wholesome nature of commu- community. And what, you may ask, has all this to do with CSR? Well, I believe it is pioneers like Fernando and the others discussed in this book that are at the forefront of the CSR 2.0 wave. If we subject Lentil as anything to the five tests of CSR 2.0, it scores well. Is Lentil creative? Yes. Is it scalable? Not sure. Is it responsive? Extremely. Is it global? Yes, it thinks globally but acts locally. Is it circular? Mostly, yes. Local production and recycling are part of the philosophy and practice. Even in terms of scalability, Lentil as anything gives me pause to think about what I mean by that. If we accept Chris Anderson's long-tail approach to scalability, the restaurant doesn't have to go from four to 40,000 branches to be scalable. It could be that 10,000 independent restaurants, all inspired by a similar philosophy, pop up all around the world and turn the generosity experiment into a global movement. As the world recovers from the age of greed that culminated in the global financial crisis, it is refreshing to be reminded of the rightful place of money in society. Money is always a means to an end, never the end in itself. Melbourne, and indeed the world, would be a poorer place if brave experiments like Lentil as Anything were allowed to fail. Let us make sure that, in the battle of generosity versus money, generosity wins hands down. Answering the question, why? That seems like a good note to end on, but I want to finish by telling one more story. It is a true story with a message told by Polish journalist Ryzard Kapusinski in his remarkable book, The Shadow of the Sun. He was travelling to Onitsha, a small town in eastern Nigeria, which is legendary for having the biggest market in Africa, perhaps in the world. A few kilometers outside of town, he got stuck in a monumental traffic jam. After an hour of not moving, Kapusinski got out and walked into town in an attempt to discover the source of the problem. 
I will let him tell the rest of the story. In one spot, the street was crowded. There was a noisy, nervous commotion. Engines were roaring. You could hear shouting and calling. Once I pushed myself through the thong, I saw an enormous gaping hole in the middle of the street, huge, wide, several meters deep. It had steep, sheer sides, and its bottom was an opaque, muddy pond. The street was so narrow here that you couldn't go around the hole, and everyone who wanted to drive into town had to descend first into this abyss, plunge into its swampy waters, and then hope that someone, somehow, would pull them out. I was immediately struck by how the area around the hole had become the epicenter of local life, how it drew people, engaged them, spurred them to initiative and action. In the normal, sleepy, lifeless backwater on the outskirts of town, where the unemployed slumber in the streets and packs of dogs roam, there arose, suddenly and spontaneously, thanks solely to that unfortunate hole, a dynamic, humming, bustling neighbourhood. The whole created work for the unemployed, who formed teams of rescuers and made money hauling cars out of the pit. It brought new customers for the women operating sidewalk eateries. Because of the attendant traffic jam, shoppers appeared in previously empty local shops, serving the passengers and drivers of cars waiting to get through, hawkers of cigarettes and cold drinks found buyers for their wares. The curse of drivers travelling to Anitsha became the salvation of the residents of the road and of this entire neighbourhood. It was further proof that every evil thing has its defenders, because everywhere there are those whom evil sustains, for whom it is an opportunity, life itself. For a long time people did not allow this hole to be repaired. I know this because when years later I was telling someone in Lagos with great emotion about my adventure in Anitsha, he replied with an absolutely indifferent tone of voice, Anitsha, it's always like that in Anitsha. The moral of the story is that today, as a global society, we are facing that crater in the road. Our social, environmental and ethical crises. It doesn't help to point fingers at who created the whole. It is the result of our collective actions, the erosion caused by the relentless drive of consumptive, inequitable capitalism. The sad fact of the matter is that many people still benefit from our gigantic pothole of unsustainability and irresponsibility. Businesses, politicians, even NGOs. What's more, many of us working in CSR are like the street vendors. We help to make the inconvenience of the crisis a little more comfortable for the drivers. We sustain the rescue teams and we converse with the curious onlookers. But we're still not repairing the hole. Of course, we all know, including the truck drivers of the global capitalist economy, that the situation is ultimately unsustainable and irresponsible. But we need the courage to challenge the status quo, to stand up to those who are entrenched in the system, to question the integrity and wisdom of the beneficiaries of inertia. The age of responsibility will only dawn when those of us working in corporate sustainability and responsibility, whether as leaders of business, regulators, managers, consultants, activists, teachers or students, only when we focus our efforts not on those hauling the trucks out of the hole, but rather on filling in the hole. 
we are on the brink of the post-industrial revolution and we need to decide whether we will be accomplices in slowing that transition or catalysts in speeding us towards a better future. As Manfred Max Neef, author of Economics Unmasked, puts it, Let us imagine that economics becomes again the manner of managing the household in order to achieve the art of living and living well, respecting the right of all others to achieve the same within the limits of the carrying capacity of our planet. There is a saying in Africa that there are two hungers, the lesser hunger and the greater hunger. The lesser hunger is for the things that sustain life, goods and services and the money to pay for them. The greater hunger is for an answer to the question, why? For some understanding of what life is for. CSR change agents have a fantastic opportunity to feed the greater hunger by making a constructive difference and leaving a positive legacy. As Viktor Frankl said, each person is questioned by life and only they can answer to life by answering for their own life. This book has been an existential questioning for me. Is working in corporate sustainability and responsibility a good answer to my life's question? In the end, I'm convinced that it is, but only if we can unmask the limitations of CSR 1.0, the defensive, charitable, promotional and strategic versions of CSR. Only if we can embrace CSR 2.0, systemic CSR, corporate sustainability and responsibility that judges its success and improvements in the overall cultural, social, economic and ecological system. I hope you will join me on this quest and find your unique and invaluable way to make a difference through CSR. If you want to stay up to date with CSR 2.0 ideas, feel free to be in touch at wayne at waynevisser.com or keep in touch with the latest thinking and content on CSR 2.0 by keeping an eye on the Age of Responsibility blogspot.com or www.csrinternational.org.